So welcome to our final session of the, uh, so I'm uh, David Hempton, uh, Dean of the Divinity School. Um, welcome to our final session of uh, the Religions and the Practice of Peace Colloquium for the academic year. Had a wonderful year of colloquia. Um, uh, tonight's topic is the evolving field of religious peace building, Tannenbaum's Peacemakers in Action, Volume 2. I'd like to start off by expressing some thanks uh, to our guest speakers, um, uh, Joyce Dubensky, it's wonderful to have you. Uh, we're uh, very specially glad to have you given your uh, uh, travails with uh, railroad tracks and things. So uh, it's great to see you looking so well and restored to health. We're, we're very delighted to have you. And uh, Hind Kabawat, who's um, uh, joining us, I, I think, from Geneva. Um, um, uh, I want to thank the Religious Literacy Project at Harvard Divinity School, which is co-sponsoring this session, um, and to Diane Moore, who um, uh, 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 directs that. I want to thank the El Hebri Foundation for support of this year's RPP Colloquium Series. We're very grateful. And to Karen and Al Budney for their generous support of this initiative. Uh, we're very grateful. I'd also like to thank um, uh, all of you joining us tonight from across Harvard and the surrounding area. And as always, to our dedicated RP students and volunteers who are the best. Uh, so thank you so much for all that you uh, have done for us and are doing for us. As we were planning the RPP Colloquium series this year, we thought it would be fitting for our culminating session to feature the important work of Tannenbaum, one of the major pioneering organizations in the field of religious peace building, as many of you know, and to draw upon Tannenbaum's expertise to help us think in broad terms about this vital and evolving field. Tannenbaum has been fostering interreligious tolerance and understanding through education and training in a variety of sectors for more than two decades now, and has been making significant contributions to the field of religious peace building in the areas of both practice and scholarship notably through its Global Peacemakers in Action Network and its publication, Peacemakers in Action, Profiles of Religion and Conflict Resolution, which was first published by Cambridge University Press in 2007. Uh, volume one was edited by David Little, formerly of um, Harvard Divinity School, um, and it profiled 16 religious peacemakers, among them Pastor um, uh, James Wuye and Imam Mohammed Ashafa, um, uh, interfaith peacemakers from Nigeria who actually presented um, for the RPP colloquium in December, as many of you know. It was a tremendous uh, um, uh, visit that they uh, made to us. Um, um, also in that volume um, um, uh, featured is uh, Yehesko Landau, who's here tonight. Yehesko, uh, thanks for coming up from Hartford. Um, um, and um, who's worked for Jewish-Arab coexistence in Israel. He's a, one of our alums and now professor at Hartford Seminary and a member of the RPP Working Group. And also featured in that volume, uh, uh, Reverend Roy McGee and Father Alec Reed of, of uh, Northern Ireland, um, peace-building fame. We're honored and delighted to have uh, Tannenbaum, CEO of Joyce Tbensky, with us here tonight to talk about its work and its forthcoming Peacemakers in Action, Volume 2, and the evolving religious peace-building field. We're also very honored and grateful to be joined virtually by one of the outstanding peacemakers featured in volume two, uh, Hind Kabawad of Syria. Um, so we, uh, this will be happening via Skype, 
Um, all things being equal, which they never are in technology, but we're uh, hoping. Um, uh, Hin Kabawit is currently involved in the Syrian peace talks in Geneva, but is nevertheless very graciously taking time to join us for this session via live Skype. So please bear with us as we experiment with some creative use of technology to make this possible. Um, if I'm correct, it should be already after midnight uh, where uh, Hin Kabawit is. Um, uh, so we thank you for staying up as we are, I say, into the wee small hours uh, to be with us. Uh, so uh, we're very grateful. We're also pleased to have as our moderator this evening, Professor Diane Moore, Director of the Religious Literacy Project at Harvard Divinity School, dear friend and colleague, and member of the RPP's working group and valued contributor to the RPP since the start of the initiative. Diane focuses her research on enhancing the public understanding of religion through education from the lens of critical theory. Her current project is a massive open online course, a MOOC, uh, through Harvard X entitled Religious Literacy, Traditions and Scriptures, which is the first in a series entitled World Religions Through Their Scriptures. Um, this MOOC is now upwards of uh, 81,000 um, uh, people uh, who have um, um, uh, 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 enrolled in this, so it's a phenomenal uh, uh, achievement. Uh, I think we have all high expectations that this will break the 100,000 mark, which is a remarkable, absolutely remarkable uh, thing. Diane is also the principal investigator for a three-year initiative entitled Religious Literacy in the Professions. This is a new initiative um, uh, around religious literacy in the professions, a collaboration between Harvard Divinity School and Boston University um, uh, with Steve Prothero um, uh, in the religion department at BU, who, as you know, wrote a, an important book on religious literacy. Um, Diane is the director of the Religious Literacy Project, coordinator for the Religious Studies and Education Certificate, and serves on the task force for training tools and methods at the US State Department through its Office of Religion and Global Affairs. Regarding her work in education with educators, Diane chaired the American Academy of Religions Task Force on Religion in the Schools, which conducted a three-year initiative to establish guidelines for teaching about religion in K through 12 public schools. Her book, which is a great read, um, uh, Overcoming Religious Illiteracy, a Cultural Studies Approach to the Study of Religion in Secondary Education, which I read immediately after coming to Harvard in 2006-07, um, it was published by Palgrave in 2007, and she serves on the editorial boards of the journals Religion and Education and the British Journal of Religious Education. In 2014, she received the Petra Shattuck Excellence in Teaching Award from the Harvard Extension School and the Griffith Award from the Connecticut Council for Interfaith Understanding for her work promoting the public understanding of religion. In 2005 and 6. She was uh, awarded um, by Harvard Divinity School students as the HCS Outstanding Teacher of the Year. Only the very great people get that award. <laughs> um, more, uh, Diane was also on the faculty at Phillips Andover Academy in the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies until 2013. She's an ordained minister in the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. So with that, I'd like to turn over our program to Professor Diane Moore. Diane, thank you so much. Thank you, David. Um, so we do have 81,000 people enrolled in this MOOC, which is pretty remarkable. I just have to confess, 40,000 of them are my family and their friends. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I want to, before I begin uh, to make brief remarks, because we are already a little behind our schedule uh, and introduce our guest speakers, I just want to take a moment to say how grateful I am personally, and I think on behalf of many of us here at Harvard, for David Hempton's leadership in this colloquium to bring these questions to the fore in the context of Harvard University and the larger, uh, larger Boston area and larger world. So thank you, David, for your leadership in this. I also just have to say an incredible thank you to Liz Lee Hood, who is the our architect for this entire series. Thank you. The work behind the scenes is more than any of us can even imagine, and Liz has done it with grace and generosity and kindness. The Tannenbaum Center for Interreligious Understanding is a New York-based nonprofit with a critically important mission combating religious hate and prejudice. And of course, religious hate and prejudice is every day, everywhere, all over the news with very little attention uh, to the also the other powerful dimension of religion, which is uh, to challenge those representations. Um, and one of the, there are many, many dimensions of Tannenbaum that we should be grateful for in terms of their capacious work. But I wanna, I wanna highlight three really important ones related to this particular initiative that we're celebrating tonight, the Peace Builders in Action. First, Tannenbaum brings a really sophisticated and capacious understanding of religion to the work they're doing, and they're translating that sophisticated, capacious understanding to a general audience. This is really important. We in the academy pride ourselves in being uh, sophisticated around these questions, but the translation to a larger audience is a really, really important and critical uh, need in our world today, and Tannenbaum is doing more than its lion's share of work to advance that uh, larger, what I call religious literacy, or promotion of the public understanding of religion. The second is that they focus on the complexities and richness of particularity and context and the limits of grand narratives. I'll say more about that in a moment. And finally, they are not shying away from representing the challenges as well and the defeats, as well as the victories of what it means to do long-term, long-standing peace-building work. So tangible examples, they are sharing with us these portraits of these remarkable peace-builders, both in volume one and in volume two. Examples of people who, against the odds, are motivated by faith, by faith in the credibility of hope. Motivated by faith in the credibility of hope through a whole host of religious and again, capacious understanding of religious motivations. And that's a really important contribution. They're local, particular, complex stories and profiles. They have universal relevance in and through their specificity and focus on building human relationships across what seem to be unbridgeable chasms. And we're gonna hear from Hind in a moment, and I hope she'll share some of her on-the-ground work around exactly this sort of challenging building bridges across these divides. The first volume is incredibly inspiring, and the second volume promises to be even more so with two important new foci, profiling more women, which is in itself a significant challenge in, in this world, and they have done so uh, already with remarkable uh, success in terms of their just honoring the, the every year their honoring of, of peace builders. And they're also including in this volume more information about those challenges and defeats 
that peace builders experience as well as their successes. We do such a disservice, and I think, I think actually the first volume did this, but I'm eager to see as the second volume, when I, when I see the full, I've, I got a little preview of a few of the chapters, but when I look at the second volume, I'm really happy that they're taking that on because we do a terrible disservice when our, when our, when our heroes, our role models, are the Gandhis, what we've done to the Gandhis and the Kings and the Mother Teresas to make them larger than life. It makes it feel more and more distant for any of the rest of us to do our part, to be inspired, to be able to say, we can, we can do this too. We can act in these ways. And so representing the challenges and really creating these human profiles and, and some of what, how, what it means to engage and respond to defeats as well as celebrate victories is such an important contribution and we're really grateful for it. And then finally, I just wanna say that uh, the work that Tannenbaum is doing is measurable in some ways. We've got these great volumes. They have many programs that I'll highlight in a moment. But they also, um, there's work that will never be able to be measured. And I just want to say one quick word about the privilege I've had working with Joyce on this task force that David mentioned at the State Department, uh, along with Mark Gopin, by the way, who I know Hind has uh, collaborated with, and I, he, may, he may be mentioned in her remarks. Uh, Mark was also a, a presenter here in the colloquium series. Jocelyn Cesari, who's also here at Harvard and was a moderator at the last, uh, we're sharing, um, uh, have the privilege of being on this task force together. But I just want to say that one of, I've been so grateful even in these early days of this task force for Joyce's very clear, very strong insistence on the importance of the particularities and the building of relationships. And if we talk about what we're talking about in terms of what it means to train foreign service officers and people in the State Department, Joyce is being very clear that we can't, we can have very few grand narratives in this. It really is about helping people think about particularities on the ground, helping our professionals in the State Department build on the skills they already have, but to understand religion in more, in more specific ways and substantive ways. And Joyce's insistence on recognizing uh, our humility, in a sense, as task force members, as well as what we can contribute and the importance of those relationships has been, has been really wonderful and stunning. Uh, so it's a real pleasure to have you here and a real honor for us to have you with us. So Joyce Dubensky is the, oh, I still, now I have to, I still have to introduce you. Sorry, this is now, this is going to be another 20, this is, this will be 30 minutes of reading her bio, but I'm, I'm, I'm cutting it down. Joyce Dubensky is the CEO of Tannenbaum, a secular non-sectarian profit, nonprofit that systemically dismantles religious violence and hatred. Known worldwide for its work with religiously motivated peacemakers, combating extremism, and tackling global armed conflicts. Tannenbaum also tackles religious bullying of students, harassment in workplaces, and disparate health treatment for people based on their beliefs. Internationally in demand as a speaker and a trainer and a member of a task force, Ms. Dubinsky has led Tannenbaum and expanded its work globally for nearly 15 years. She's presented at the United Nations, the Interfaith Kosovo Second Annual Conference, the Interparliamentary Conference on Human Rights and Religious Freedom, the Woodrow Wilson Center, the United States Institute for Peace, among many others. As an attorney, Ms. Dubensky served as a national um, consultant for the Council of Jewish Federations, now Jewish Federations of North America. She also created the legal department at the United Jewish Appeal Federation of Jewish Philanthropies of New York, where she served as its first general counsel for over 10 years. And Hind, 
Kabawat. Hind is the Director of Interfaith Peacebuilding at the Center for World Religions, Diplomacy, and Conflict Resolution at George Mason University. She was raised in Syria and now lives in Toronto. Because of her dedicated efforts to build peace in the Middle East, she was named a Tannenbaum Peacemaker in Action in 2007. When Hind became a peacemaker, Syria was a relatively peaceful country. Since that time, Syria has descended into a devastating, heartbreaking civil war. Hind leads, leads civil society building efforts in Syria that promote interfaith tolerance and build cooperation and conflict resolution and reconciliation skills among grassroots activists. Hind is on the advisory board of the World Bank, uh, focusing on Middle Eastern issues, is a member of the Global Agenda Council for War Intervention at the World Economic Forum, and is a founding member of the Syrian Center of Dialogue. And Hind, I just want to say thank you for being with us via Skype in the middle of the night. We are so grateful to have you with us. And I'll turn this podium now over to Joyce and look forward to your comments. Thank you. Uh, oh, there's a lot of water here, actually. <laughs> there's a lot of water. There's also a step stool for me. Hi, Hind. Okay, good evening. Um, so about a third of my remarks have been taken already. I will try to uh, slide over them because without, if I don't, then you'll have no context and I'll sound very disjointed. But I do have some remarks. It's not as bad as it looks. Um, I am actually really excited to be here. I want, I want to thank you, Dean Hempton, and the wonderful Leslie Hood. I, she is truly amazing, and thank you for making this happen. It was important to us, and I'm glad to be here. Um, it's an honor to be part of the RPP initiative. You know, I looked at its name, uh, Religions and the Practice of Peace. And I was thinking that the concept behind RPP is actually the work that we do at Tannenbaum every day. Our approach is to try to create environments, whether it's in schools or workplaces or in healthcare settings, uh, where people are treated with respect. And in so doing, what we do is we put into practice honoring the humanity and, if you will, the divine in others. Um, so it's really exciting to be here because I think there's huge alignment. Um, I'm also thrilled because I get to talk about our soon-to-be-released book that was supposed to be released before I got here today. So we're sorry you can't get it, but you can sign up if you want information about it later and let us know. Um, it's called, different from our first book, A Peacemakers in Action, Profiles of Religious Peacebuilding, but it is volume two. And I'll be telling you a little bit about that, about how our work with the peacemakers has evolved over the years and how it's still evolving. And that's really a theme for a lot of what I'll be saying. Harvard is the perfect place for me to be doing this for the very first time because so far I haven't talked about our book to any audiences. So this is our first outing. Um, some of our greatest partners in our conflict resolution and peacebuilding work are from this great institution. Dr. William Graham has been on our advisory board for years. Two of our program advisors, um, David Little, um, who was the editor of our first book and is a dear friend, 
Um, but also uh, Dr. George Rupp, who at one time was Dean Hempton. And um, then he went on to do some other things, like run the International Rescue Committee. Um, he wrote the preface to the new book. And so we have lots of ties to Harvard. And I want to thank you and start at the beginning. Um, as you heard a little bit about our organization, I'll do it again quickly. We're, Tannenbaum is a secular organization. We're non-sectarian. Um, our approach is to deal with the power of religion in people's lives but it is, and in society, and our mission is to combat religious prejudice, hatred, and violence. So we, I hope you all have the continuum of peace. Do you have it? Do we, okay. So if you take a look at it, like a really close look, you'll see that it's not only a continuum of peace, uh, which shows where we want to go, it's also the continuum of hate. And it warns us of the slippery slope that we're on as you take the steps from hatred, ignorance, disinformation, and you end up with violence and extremism. That's what we're trying to combat. We have a series of strategies at Tannenbaum for tackling these religious conflicts in everyday life, and I'm not gonna talk about those today. But our focused peace-building work is different. It's around the men and the women we call peacemakers in action, and it's about how we look toward building peace. Um, so in the beginning, it all started with Ambassador Richard Holbrook over a lunch when he suggested that there had to be some, this is in the middle 90s, the late 90s, there had to be some people who because of religion were working for peace and nobody was recognizing them. They were kind of unknowns and, you know, and, and they needed cover. Somebody needed to acknowledge them and give them some publicity because they were at risk and no one was paying attention. Well, he said that to the woman who was our president and was our founder and Tannenbaum created the Peacemakers in Action Award and decided that it would do in-depth case studies so that we could make the case that religious peacemakers exist and show how religion was a force for peace. So to select them, we created five criteria. All of our peacemakers need to be religiously motivated, working for peace or having work for peace in an armed conflict, doing work, at least sometimes, at the grassroots, being relatively unknown at the time they're selected, and having their lives or their freedom been at risk. So that, that's how we started. And in 1998, we named our first peacemaker, Friar Ivo Markovich from uh, Sarajevo. And today, we've named 30 peacemakers in action. 26 of them are now living, and they're in 23 conflicts and post-conflicts around the world. In 2007, you heard, we issued our first book, uh, with Friar Evo's story and 15 other case studies, um, including Yeheskel's. Um, you heard that he's here, so I'm really glad, but I also want you to know that he's been with us really from very early on. Our new book updates the original uh, stories, and it also includes 
new in-depth case studies of seven more. But documenting the work of our peacemakers is no longer our sole focus. In what really turned out to be an organic process over years with a lot of people involved, a big story for another night, um, our work evolved. In 2004, we held our first working retreat. This summer, we'll hold our sixth. In 2004, we met the peacemakers for the first time in person, and many of them were isolated, alone, working in silos. Today, they work together and with Tannenbaum have established a formal network, something we call the Peacemakers in Action Network. We have a network coordinator who keeps everyone in communication. We have our working retreats where they train each other and they look at hard issues together. So this summer, what are we gonna be looking at? What are some of the things that have been working in some places, sometimes, to combat violent extremism? How can we do better about working with women peacemakers when we all have our own implicit biases? And we have interventions. Interventions are when a couple of the peacemakers have a project where they realize that if they come together, they can have a greater impact and they work together, and we help to fund some of those. Yeheskel was on one, so if you corner him later, he'll be able to tell you about what we did in Nigeria to try to keep elections peaceful some years ago. So you can see the work has evolved. And so is our approach to documenting the peacemakers. Volume two is similar to volume one in that it focuses on individuals individuals who are religiously motivated to pursue peace. We tell their stories and we try to contextualize the conflicts in which they are in, so we also give some historical context. But the new book differs in three ways, or maybe I should say four, because I didn't include adding additional women, which is part of our focus um, and was also one of the changes that's happened over the years, but three. Um, First, we partnered with leading institutions, scholars, and young academics to develop several of our case studies. And so we brought new perspectives and new ways of thinking to this work. Second, before we started, we interviewed friends in the field and we said, okay, we, we're glad you liked the first book. What would have made it better for you? And that's when we learned that they needed more critical analysis about how what the peacemakers were doing, their stories, who they were, fit within the theory, within the literature of religious peace building. So we've tried in each of the new case studies to add a small section on critical analysis. And finally, as was mentioned, we with deliberation tried less to present our peacemakers only as the heroes and heroines that they are but also as the very human beings that we know and whose work is not always successful and whose challenges are tremendous. The truth is not every peace building effort is successful. And even when you achieve peace, sometimes it evaporates. 
and peace building is simply not linear. So creating this book and all of the work that we do stimulates a lot of conversation at Tannenbaum. Um, there's a lot of discussion, a lot of analysis, and a lot of going back and forth. And in the process of creating the book, we felt we had to go back and look at our original premises and even some of the data that we discussed in our first book. And guess what? We had to make some adjustments. <laughs> it wasn't all the way we saw it before. When we started our work, we were guided by an underlying premise, maybe our thesis, our theory, that there were religious peacemakers countering violence and conflict. And implicit in that assumption was that religious peacemakers were somehow a distinct brood driven by religion and using religion for peace. But after we identified the peacemakers using our five criteria, what became clear when we really looked at it honestly was that most of them didn't fully fit neatly into that analysis. They were all driven by religion and all pursuing peace. Many of them were not in recognizable religious roles and they were using techniques that didn't necessarily involve religion. Of course, we have clergy among our peacemakers. They're all men. But many of our peacemakers, both men and women, are religiously driven actors. They're peace activists. And they're in professions that are not on their face religious. And for the record, this actually includes some of our clergy. So the professions of our peacemakers include musicians, education, the law, media, and community organizing, among other things. These religious peacemakers disprove our initial premise, and their work reveals that there's a blurry line between religious peace building and what's really what we've been calling secular peace building. <laughs> the truth is they overlap. That's why at Tannenbaum, we don't define religious peacemakers by their professional work, the techniques that they use, or whether they fit some image of peacemaking like they're getting two conflicting parties together to resolve a conflict. Instead, we define them by what drives them to pursue peace, religion, faith, and spirituality. Let me try to make the point with a specific. I hope you have the 10 religious peacemaking technique sheet. Okay, those are the 10 techniques that we identified in 2007 as the ones that our peacemakers used most often. They're still accurate, um, but if you look at them, and you look at them through the lens of the secular and religious question, what you see is that the dichotomy doesn't work so well. I'll tell you what you mean, I mean. Some of the techniques are secular on their face. Number five, I think it is, adapting secular practices for religious peace building. Taking a secular practice, taking a Western practice, not a religious act to do that. 
But take a look at number four, because that's where you start to really unravel some of the complexity, I think. The power of the pulpit. By that we mean people who are acknowledged religious leaders in their traditions who have the capacity and the credibility to use their religious roles to influence people toward peace. One good example of this and its complexity is Chen Alas. Though he has since left the priesthood, when Chen Chou was a priest, he actually used his authority um, as a religious leader to organize local peasants and get them to seek justice for land rights. His approach, if you will, was simultaneously religious and secular. He used the power of the pulpit and his scripture, admittedly religious activities, but his objective was economic justice, a secular objective. The line is blurred, but it gets even mushier. Because when you think of Chen Chou, and you think why he was doing this, Chen Chou was seeking to get these people to engage in political action because he was being driven by a compulsion to pursue justice, a religious compulsion. So his motivation really came from his faith, and it all is of one technique. The overlap in the fluidity between the secular and the religious is actually a very important concept because the false dichotomy that peace builders are over here and religious peacemakers are over there risks thinking of the religious peacemaker as somehow different, not that relevant, marginalized, and not within a broader field of peace building where we can all learn from one another. They are part of the peace building field. Volume two tries to explore this issue, but we complicate it. Because even though it's true that there's overlap in almost everything and you can make that argument, we do think that there are some traditions that are more properly understood as truly religious peacemaking, religious traditions being used in peace building. Go back to Chen Shu. Even though his use of the pulpit was nuanced, it's still an example of a religious leader exercising authority and influence due to his status as a clergy person. The power of the pulpit, therefore, even though it can be nuanced, is better understood as a religious practice, even though it can seek secular ends. And interestingly, a lot of our peacemakers seem to intuitively understand that because they use religious leaders um, to access their, their stature to validate their work when it makes sense to do so. One of the great examples of this is Jamila Afghani from Afghanistan. She was using the Quran and distinguishing between the text and the practice to try to get uh, the community to understand 
that women deserve to be treated with respect and that domestic violence was not acceptable. To do this, she had male Islamic experts sanction her work. Essentially, she appropriated their authority because she needed it in her culture. And that is even though, in her own right, she is an Islamic scholar. These are techniques. They're grounded in religion, and our peacemakers use them. Another one grounded in religion is the use of religious texts. Lots of our peacemakers use it, clergy and non-clergy. I like to think of our lawyer peacemaker, Ricardo Esquivia Ballestas from Colombia, a country where the Bible is a shared language. And so he uses the Bible and he quotes the text when he's trying to organize peasants in order to uh, preserve their rights and protect their freedom. Today he's working with them, trying to get ready for the peace that they hope will come. So if there are a few religious techniques that are truly religious, there are also secular techniques that are often used. And when we looked at them, we looked at them through the lens of our original book and our original 10 techniques. And we decided that we had to kind of rework two of those techniques because we think that really, because of changes in the world, they no longer are separate. In 2007, it made sense to us to distinguish the power of the written word and the way Father Alec Reed had used the written word to encourage the Good Friday agreements, to distinguish that as one technique, and to distinguish the work of the cyber monk, who was um, Save Yanyak, Father Yanyak, who was using technologies and social and uh, to, to get to reporters to talk about what was going on in Kosovo as a separate technique reaching the global community. But social media is in a very different place today, and our communications are evolving rapidly. And our peacemakers are using communications in a range of ways. So now we think of the secular that there's really one secular technique and it's peace building communications. And it just includes a lot of different disparate parts. There are also um, some new techniques that we were able to identify because of the work with more peacemakers. Our peacemakers often are creating networks to do their work, informal networks and formal networks. It's one of the techniques that they use. Maybe a secular technique, but useful for them. And maybe they're bringing their religious authority to do it. It's complicated. Likewise, education. Not only are children being taught, but educational practices, educational teachings are being done by our peacemakers, adult education, in a lot of the work that they do. It's part of how they seek transformation. But the final secular technique is one that I think you've already witnessed. Um, and so we had noted it, but didn't realize that it wasn't unique to Pastor James and Imam Ashafa. 
Um, it's called, we call it modeling transformed relationships. And you saw them model for you what peace can actually look like. But in our continuing work, we've met others who did the same thing. So in the north of Israel, we had Osnat and Najiba. Osnat, the Jewish Zionist principal in a very modern elementary school in Carmiel. And Najiba, 10 minutes down the road, the Muslim Israeli principal in an elementary school where the kids were sweeping the cement floors every day at the end of school to keep them clean, not equally resourced. These two women found each other, and they really became soul sisters. And they modeled sisterhood in their community so that the teachers in their schools followed them. Their kids started to meet with one another so that they would not grow up hating each other. And even some of the parents who had never been in the same events ended up in some of the same events for the kids. For me, the bottom line in all of this is that religiously driven peace builders exist. They exist everywhere in all of the conflicts we read about. And they are a force for peace. And that means that even though we may not be able to recognize them by their vocation, their approaches, or their garb, we still have to find them. And that leads to the next question, which is, if you can't tell a peace builder by what they look like, their work, or, or you know, how they're you know, pursuing peace, a religious peace builder, just how do you identify him or her? Partly it's their religious motivation but there are other ways too. We've really spent a lot of time with our peacemakers and more and more over the years, and we found that they tend to share some common characteristics, qualities that if you're looking for them might help you to identify who is the religious peacemaker in the room. One quality, my favorite actually, is emotional intelligence. We find this in all of our peacemakers. It manifests in different ways. It's not every minute, all the time. They're all very human, but emotional intelligence. I'm going to give you an example of what I mean. Bishop Natambu is from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. He worked for his people. He built schools. He uh, took care of orphans. He built churches. And then the president asked him to convene a peace conference with the Mai Mahi, the cannibal tribe that was terrorizing the community. Um, he did it. He agreed to do it, and through intermediaries, it was all set up. And on the fateful day, a cavalry of cars with Uzis hanging out the window drove up to his house, and he happened to be home. As his wife ran out the back door, he went out the front door to greet the warlord, Chinga Chinga, who wore dried testicles in his hair. I think that's gutsy. Um, he, um, Chinga Chinga got out of the car, 
and to everyone's surprise, began to kneel before Bishop Natambu. And he said, Father, will you bless me? And he did. Even though this was a man who was a killer, even though this was a man who he wanted to fight everything he stood for, he gave him the blessing and he invited him into his home as a guest. And they did create a peace in that conference. So I call that emotional intelligence. What do I mean by that? Natambu saw the humanity even in a killer. He practiced radical hospitality by acting with pure compassion. And he found a way to communicate with his enemy. He was able to communicate with someone very different from himself. What drove him to do this is really, I believe, another core characteristic of our peacemakers and part of their emotional intelligence. When they see a wrong, when they see an injustice, they're not running in the other direction out the back door. They're running toward it because it's so painful to them, they can't stand what it feels like to look at that wrong, and they have to try to do something about it. I am sure that that was true of Bishop Natambu, and it is something that we see with our peacemakers. We've seen other traits too, creative problem solving, facing death maybe with fear, but not immobilized at all because God is with them, because of their faith. So you can see, we keep learning, and as we move forward in our work, the field of religious peace building has been evolving too. In the late 90s, we were trying to prove that religion was a force for peace, to make that case. Today we have a full-fledged field. Universities, Harvard, offering courses. Some are offering degrees in, in religious peacemaking, in conflict resolution and peace building. There are students who are beginning to imagine and plan for careers as religious peace builders. The field's expanding. And today we therefore see trends. There are more and more, there's a proliferation of religious peacemaking networks. We see professionalization, not only capacity to learn, but also self-reflection. Looking at what we're not doing and where we have to do better. Looking at who we've left out of the field, like youth, women, indigenous religious leaders, and peace actors who are not from the Abrahamic faiths. We're even beginning to look at those measurement questions. How do we measure our success? How do we identify our weaknesses and how do we hopefully address them? It's an important moment for the field and one that I hope Peacemakers in Action Volume 2 is going to contribute to. So I'm going to close this part of my comments now by sharing my dream for religious peace building. A dream that the vocation of religious peace building will one day be broadly recognized so that children 
can not only dream about becoming firefighters or lawyers or entrepreneurs, but they can also dream about becoming religious peace builders. And when that happens, I dream that these women, men, and youth, these religious leaders and religious actors, all of them, will be acknowledged by the world's leaders, the diplomats, the government officials, and civil society as partners and as part of the solution to the intractable problems we are facing around the world. When that happens, we're going to have made progress and moved closer to living the practices of peace. Thank you. I'm just going to do him for two minutes and then I'll turn it to her. I am assuming that Hind heard all of this, but even if she wasn't listening, she better listen to this part. You're about to meet Hind Kabawat. She's one of our peacemakers. Hi, Hind. I hear you. <laughs> um, she's profiled in our upcoming book. Before she speaks, I want you to know that I think of her as my sister. Um, and I want to tell you one story about when I visited her. Um, I was at her home, and it was around the time that Syria was moving from optimistic efforts at reform into violence. And Hind was nonstop on the phone, um, on the computer, working, giving advice to her former students in Damascus, talking about how to maintain nonviolence, looking for ways to promote justice peacefully. She kept saying to me, don't mind me, I'm, you know, I have to do this, you know. And she, I understood. But when it got really late, and after she put me to bed, I heard noises and I went down to see what was going on. And I found Hind alone on a couch, curled up crying. She was crying because one of the students who had sought peace was dead. And then there was the next morning when she got up and she was on the computer and she was on the phone and she was working with people for peace. That's my sister. Resilient, strong, a diplomat's daughter, a socialite, um, a brilliant lawyer, a peace activist par excellence, and someone who never, ever, ever gives up. Now you can listen to her, but that's a little context. Thanks. Thank you, Joyce, for the introduction. Thank you, everybody, and thank you, Harvard Divinity School, for having me here on Skype. It's 2.15 AM, but it's fine. It's great to be there, even on Skype. Yes, I'm from Damascus. And uh, Joyce forgot to tell you also that she came to visit me also in Damascus, but I can tell you more about the, her visit later. So I'm from Damascus, and, and uh, I raised and live 
very close to the street called Straight. So my family were Christian for thousands years. I practiced my Christianity, proud of it, tried to have also always Jesus as a role model of mine. Uh, as uh, Joyce mentioned, yes, I lived very comfortable childhood with my parents in Damascus with my family and friends. We're from multi-faith, multi-religion background, multi-ethnic background. But this is Damascus. It's a mosaic city. And it was like this for hundred and hundred years. Just to mention that in 1950, the prime minister of Syria was Christians. So Christianity and Islam lived together for years. Neighbors, I live very close to the Jewish quarters in Baptuma where I have also lots of friends until now. I've been a lawyer, I've been working hard until I decided to go and do my master in Fletcher where they, I changed, they changed my life. And I started working more in human rights and humanitarian work. And then always the interfaith was very special things in my heart. I met Mark Gopin in the World Economic Forum, where we decided together to start doing some kind of interfaith activities. For me, interfaith activities, it's reflect my life in Damascus. So it came so natural for me to do all these meetings with many religion leaders, talking about the good things, about social justice, about fighting poverty, about how to empower civil societies. But we always link it from grassroots level to the top religions and political leaders. Then one day, over beautiful lunch with Joyce, we decided to do an interfaith for women. Why not? So, of course, Joyce and I, we got always the walk, the talk, and the we decided, yes, we can do it. So we gathered 50 women in Damascus, Christians, Muslim, Jewish, and we had a great two days interfaith trainings. Then the third day, we visited churches in Damascus, mosques, and synagogue. This is how we did it. Always commitment, always We've been passionate, hardworking. Then, in March 2011, things changed. The Syrian people decided to go to the streets peacefully to ask exactly what you all want and dream. Freedom and democracy. My friend, who Joyce told you about, student who died. He was peaceful demonstrator. He gave water, he gave flowers to the security 
and he told him, kill me, but I won't kill you. This was the first six months civil and peaceful demonstrations in Syria. Unfortunately, this beautiful, beautiful, peaceful revolution turned to be a very ugly civil war. We decided with my friend to work on the ground, to walk the talk and say we can't just be, <coughs> excuse me, to be just watching what's happening. We need to help. As a Christian here, I need to stand by the oppressed, again, the oppressors. I can't leave the poor people struggling in the refugee camps. I cannot leave the people and the women, the children, just alone. And again, with the support of all my friends, especially Tenebaum and others like Dr. Gopin, my CRDC, and all my friends around the world, we did amazing work with the refugees. We went, support them, empowered them, humanitarians, aids, and others. It's been very hard for me to see my Syria being destroyed. Today, 70% of Syria is being destroyed. 200,000 people died. There's 200,000 detainees in prisons. I just got a call now while you're all talking about my other colleagues, that there is a detainees now in Hama. They've been stuck and the regime wants to go tomorrow at five o'clock to do a massacre. They asked me, would you please call the Red Cross? I have nothing to say. I don't know what's happened to the war today. They've been silenced while the Syrian people are dying. It's been hard, but with, there is always light in the end of the tunnels. With the Tenebom, they helped me with my two colleagues, Nozizwa and Ivo. They came with me to Turkey and to Jordan to visit the refugee camps. We did the training in transitional justice, we did the training in conflict resolution. They've been great help. I've been very fortunate not to be alone in this. And this is, again, the technique we use with the Taliban, the support of each others. So I never felt alone for the last five years, never. Today, I've been elected to be from the High Negotiation Committee in Geneva. As a woman and Christian, I have a voice to increase the woman contributions and engagement in the peace process, because we believe that women can sustain peace and they can be the that they have a role at the negotiation table. We recognize that terrorism and refugee crisis are problems. But I hate to say the current policy to address this crisis is failing, and the bombing ISIS and providing humanitarian aid is not a sustainable solution, as you all see. 
Of course, we need to have comprehensive approach for this. Go back to the Geneva talk. It could provide solution. We all know that political solution is the solution, but we will succeed so long as the Syrian regime and Russia continue the bombing and violating the ceasefire, which you heard it many times, called the cessation of hostilities. In Aleppo last week, you all watched, and you all watched the red flag. It's the blood and the people, 200 civilians died. A doctor who I know died last week. Over 40 children include this 200. 40 children, they lost their life. And of course, the, the regime continued to besiege and starve 1 million Syrians and detains and torture hundreds of thousands. What a woman, Christians, can do in this big chaos, we can do a lot. And this is what we learn as a peacemaker. In the middle of the darkness, we find a light. And this light is to work hard and to put our, because we all know that we won't have peace without justice. Yes, I know it's hard. Mm -hmm. I know Geneva has been very hard. Mm -hmm. And we're trying always mm -hmm. our best to continue. Mm -hmm. And we want to continue. Mm -hmm. But I can say one thing, just to add about the dream of Joyce, she talks about, I also have a dream. I also have a dream that Syria will live one day in freedom. One day we're going to fight terrorism, ISIS, Nusra, and the Syrian regime. We want to have Syria with the civil society, with women more on the ground, working, because today, in every single refugee camp I visit, there is only women who are working hard without any titles, without really uh, having any ambitions. They just want to work hard and they work hard, Christian, Muslim and others, because we believe in one Syria. So it's my dream to have everybody live in harmony in Syria again I believe and I dream of the freedom you all heard before that the dream of freedom is so important. So I thank you again and I'm ready for any questions. Thank you.
make sure to wait for the microphone. Uh, this is always the case because we're on film, but especially so because Hind won't be able to hear you otherwise. So again, I'll entertain questions from uh, those of us who are part of the RTP working group. So please raise your hand. Thank you. Um, hi, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, throughout the series, we've heard a lot about the role of mediators in international conflicts, and then in your Peacemakers in Action work, we see the role of grassroots um, and how successful that can be. So in your experience, um, how do you view the role of the grassroots movements versus the international mediaries? And in what context do you feel one is more beneficial over the other, or how can they work together? Um, that's a great question, and I'm not sure I'm equipped to answer it. Um, I can't compare the two. We probably need all. Um, the grassroots work for us means working at the local level. It doesn't necessarily mean grassroots organizing. So we have peacemakers who are working as principals. We have peacemakers like Sakini Atlebi, who um, is now very well known, who um, created education programs and health programs, and our newest project is a radio messaging station. Um, and he's done health work and health clinics. Um, we have. Um, Andrew Wright, who not only did negotiations in Iraq with many religious leaders, but also would lecture people that he would marry to stop using tobacco um, because it wasn't healthy. So those are all high impact activities that move to stabilizing communities giving people understanding of one another, creating hope and a lived peace. Um, I don't think that means you don't need international negotiations as well. Hi, my name is Sasha. I'm a member of the working group. I'd like to thank you both for an inspiring talk and really inspiring work. It's been great for us to read about some of the individual peace, peacemakers that you profile. We were wondering, um, do you ever discuss at Tenenbaum the possibility of profiling communities rather than individuals? And would there be some benefits of focusing on a larger project with many people involved rather than individuals and their efforts? I'm sure there would be benefits. Um, uh, we haven't had that conversation because our focus is on working with individuals. That came out of, uh, I guess, our origins in the very beginning when there was some recognition that many large religious institutions were doing some wonderful peace work, humanitarian work around the world. And what we were trying to distinguish was the large religious institution and the individual actor. Some of them act from within their communities. Some of them create their own organizations. 
And some of them are solo actors, you know, and they work pretty much on their own. So I think that's where, if you will, we have focused. Um, that's not to say that there isn't merit or a need for what you're suggesting. It's only to say that it is not something that we have done. Maybe add another comment to that. It's interesting because I think in the profiles, as I know you've encountered them uh, in the working group, it, it is, in some ways, it is a celebration of communities um, through the stories of individuals. And perhaps if you, when you, when you do find three, four, five, and twelve, um, it might be interesting. You've added the, the critical reflection lens of the critical theory, but it might be interesting just for even a paragraph to comment on the the community itself uh, in, in an explicit way, because none of these actors, and I know none of them would assume this, and him, I know you would be the last to assume that you're acting individually, uh, that you are you are essentially a facilitator for a community to empower them to engage in the work that becomes ultimately successful. So it's, in a sense, it's a great question because it highlights what's already there and asks us to look for something that is present, but maybe be a slightly more specific. So, so let me ask you to write an article analyzing the cases and how they reflect community work and the communities in which they work. I would love to see that. <laughs> Hind, would you like to come in on this at all before we take another question? Do we lose him? And so the question is, do you want to comment on that? Thank you. And I'm sorry. It's not getting old. I can't hear, but uh, I think there's the microphone. So uh, we can't work and do any work without the community. It's very connected together. Because if I don't work with the community and the work I do reflect and make it better for the community and the support you can get. You can't be an individual who's doing the work by himself or herself in their ivory tower. We need to get down to the real work on the grassroots. So I think when you talk about uh, the connection between the peacemaker and their work with the community, it's very much related, and it's very much uh, uh, the accurate things to, to say. This is a good answer? Yes, very, thank you. <laughs> Other questions from the working group? Before, we will open it up to the larger group, but I wanna, okay, thank you. Question, uh, my name is Carol. I live at, I li um, my name is Carol and I admire what you're doing. My question is, the other thing that should be going on, in my, my eyes, is training future leaders, training youth to be role models in furthering this process. Do you want me to comment on that? Yes, and... Hen, do you want to talk about uh, training youth, and then I will? Yes. So uh, actually today, and uh, uh, this is what we're doing now, and we're trying to change things on the grassroots in training youth 
So we have youth now from, we're targeting group from 20 to 30 in the refugee camps, in the host communities, uh, countries for the refugees and others. And we train them in uh, peace buildings, strategy peace building, interface, conflict resolutions. And we have now materials in Arabic. So we go and I have my partner now, we go together and we do the work. She's Muslim and I'm Christian. And uh, what we want to do, we want to create a big peacekeeping, peacemakers community who can, after what the politicians, including me, finish the peace process and we do the peace agreement, we will have young youth leaders can take over and sustain this. And when we do the training, we make sure that 50% of the training, trainer, the youth, are women. Because we do believe that women can do better and they are the one they are very much concerned about the future, about their children, about their community. And they're the one they're going to keep and guard and protect this peace agreement. So going back to what I say, youth are going to be a very important part of the peace process to keep it, especially women. And when we do the training for those young we're making an investment for the future of any country. Um, there's a lot of work being done with youth, and many of our peacemakers work with youth or young adults. Um, certainly the work Yeheskel has done in um, training peace builders is a piece of that. Jackie Manapa, Reverend Jackie Manapati in Indonesia is doing that and has worked with youth for years. Osnatan Najiba, who I talked about, were trying to lay the foundation for the youngest children so that they would be learning to not demonize the other. And there are people in this country and programs in this country. I want to, though, say something about your premise. Because while I think it's very important to train young people, I think it's a cop-out. It's a cop-out for adults. Because once we, every time I hear someone say, let's train the young people, they're the ones who have, well, what about us? So, you know, aren't we responsible right this minute now? We're, you know, we're the grown-ups in the room. We're going to wait for them to learn it so that they can do better? And, and so I really think that that's a piece of a very large and very complex puzzle for building a just world. But I, I don't think that it's the answer. It is a piece of the solution. Uh, go ahead. Yes. Yes, thank you both, Joyce and Hind, for um, this wonderful presentation tonight. And Hind, I want to ask what, um, I'm wondering, you mentioned what is happening inside the prisons in Syria and all the people who are detained and are uh, being treated, um, I mean, just, it, it's, it's horrific what's happening inside. So, uh, I was commenting and wanting to ask you about what's happening inside the prisons in, in Syria at the moment. Um, I did a project with 
some Syrian activists last summer, and one of the most, um, you know, heartbreaking aspects of our project was listening to what was going on inside the prisons. And we're talking about young men, women, um, in addition to, you know, older uh, adults. Can you, can you shed some light? I mean, I'm really um, deeply concerned about what's happening there. And can you, can you share some hopeful information with us about what we can hope for in the future? Yes. First of all, I think you all heard about um, the Caesar files where there is 15,000 detainees tortured to death and they've been documented and there is one officer who smuggled all those pictures. And uh, in the last visit to Geneva, we had an exhibition to uh, give an awareness to the world that there is a war crimes happening now in the prisons of the Syrian regime. There is people are being tortured to death, women and children. And we did give uh, the, the U.S. Department, the State Department, a list of 300 uh, women with children. I typed by myself the names, and they're supposed to give it to the Russian, and there is nothing happened. So anyway, just to give you a, a little bit uh, today, I just get this one now, a message that the, uh, in the Hama, in the Hama, the, I think you, uh, you remember Hama where uh, Friedman wrote about uh, the Hama's rules. So there is um, now in the prison of Hama, there is a, a detainees, uh, they've been uh, now been having a very difficult um, uh, uh, circumstances and they decided that they, uh, they've been threatened now to be uh, killed and now uh, there is a threat and uh, they might tomorrow morning at 5 o'clock they say if you don't stop this uh, civil, uh, they, they stand and they say, we can't take this anymore. There is no water, there is no food, there is nothing. And they've been calling now this moment to the Red uh, uh, Cross to interfere. So tomorrow by at five o'clock, actually, actually after two hours from now, this is now 2.44 in Beirut time. So it's um, in Hama, 2.44. So after two hours, uh, you're going to hear that there will be massacres in the Ham, in Hama. And uh, they've been calling the Red Cross to come and help, and there is nobody is helping. So this is in other things, as a failing, like the besieged area. As you know, all of you that happened in the besieged area, we've been trying also to get food. And um, in the uh, UN resolution 2254, in the item 12 and 13, they say, uh, humanitarian aids and detainees are not negotiable. This is a right for the Syrian people to get. Everybody needs to eat. And uh, we ask about humanitarian aids and nothing happened until now. And when I did ask the U.S. envoy, Michael Ratney, I told him what's happening, why there's no humanitarian aid for Daraya and other villages besieged area. This is not fair. He, he told me, Hind, we're going to try, and we're trying, and we're trying, and nothing happened. I think, let's face it, Russia in fully control of this, and the Syrian regime and Russia decided to kill the Syrian people by starvation.
So let's take uh, Jeff. I was going to say one more or maybe two more questions from the working group, and then we'll open it up. Thanks, Jeff. <coughs> Hin, could you say a little bit about uh, inclusion of women in the official process in Geneva? I know that uh, there has been for some time a kind of second table structure around the first table, I believe, where uh, uh, a, a number of women, I think religious actors as well, have been sort of uh, on the perimeter of the, the main table. How is the process evolving? Um, most of what I know about this, I know from Aziz Halaj with the Syria Initiative in the Common Space Institute in Beirut. Thank you for this question. This is a very uh, close subject to my heart, by the way. So when they uh, elected the HNC and we did want to do the negotiation team, we have only four women in our team. And there is from the regime, I think there is only three, and now they don't have any. Uh, Dimistura decided that he needed to have his own advisory woman, which it's great because we do encourage and we like to have more women at the negotiating tables. But for us at the high negotiation uh, committee, we got a little bit uh, annoyed because we're only four. So we pushed to have our consulting women group We've, they've been coming with us every time we go to Geneva, we'll have another 12 women and they will be with us as an advisor. They are working on every single file. They work on the humanitarian file, human rights, uh, detainees, and also for the uh, transitional government body, the TGB. So women are been working hand to hand and we've been pushing to have more women uh, contribution and uh, 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 in the political process. Also, when we all prepared for the, uh, for the principles of the new constitution and our principle for new Syria, we insisted to have 30% women uh, um, um, commit, uh, contribution to the, and uh, to be involved in the political process in every aspect, in every place, 30% women representative. So just to remind you that in the US is only 18%. So we did our work and we did it very well. So we have now 30% women. Uh, so uh, the more women, as to go back to your question, the more women involved in this, it's better for the peace, to have a sustainable peace. We've been working, we've been training in negotiation, we've been getting now more uh, women, young women to be involved, and uh, we're getting now more, and even uh, with the Dimistora team, they are the advisors, they are also our friends. So you can see now the women advisory of Dimistora, they come to our women advisory in our hotel, we have our visit, and uh, it's been great, because you know what? In the end of the day, the women know that we are Syrian and we don't need any mediator between us. So while the men are fighting and they are uh, uh, doing all this fight, the women are working in the refugee camps and in Geneva, they've been talking together and they're thinking about the core problems, how to solve and save Syria. Thank you.
So my question is, you talked about your dreams and your hopes for the future. And my question is, in these times, where do you find the core of these dreams and hopes? Where are they coming from? And then my question for you is, looking at the peacemakers in Tanamom in general, where are they finding that core? Hind, where do you get your strength? This question for me, right? Right. Uh, I, I have to uh, tell you the truth. Sometimes I don't see this while you're sitting in these rooms in Geneva and uh, watching all those movies and videos they've been sent for people who are dying from starvation. Sometimes I lose hope. But the hope I get from the activists, from the people on the ground. The mother who lost six of her children, but she still say that I want to rebuild Syria. I have the dream of this woman who lost her house. She lost her children, but she always, but she opened a little school in her tent to teach other children. I have a dream and I have a hope when I see the women who are working together in netting and doing some work to feed their kids and their dream about going back to Syria. So those women in the refugee camps give me lots of hopes. Sometimes I feel terrible when I lose hope while they are still singing in the morning and plant in their in their very, very dry area near their tent, flowers. So, yes, I, will, I, get, I get hopes from them. But I do know that this hope won't come to reality if the international community won't help those women. We, they, when I get this letter from this woman from Daria, to tell me that we have nothing to eat. I, I dream about that the international community will decide to, have a, to break the sieges through air drops and maybe to impose sanctions on Russia for violating the ceasefires. Or also, I, I just have this about maybe prosecute war crimes. We have a problem, there is a war crimes in Syria. So my hope also that the international community help us in the dream of having justice because this woman if the man who killed her children and husband won't go to the uh, to the uh, to the to be prosecuted they won't have peace and justice uh, yes i will have a dream when the international community decided all of them to protect the civilians in syria if, if the Geneva process fails, and this is something is not going to be good for anybody, it's going to be a disaster for anybody. So my dream is that we all need to protect the civilians. So this is my hope, and this is my dream, to count on this international community in you, to help telling your Congress to everybody, those Syrian people, they might, we don't look like you maybe, 
But believe me, we have heart. And we do believe in democracy and freedom like you. I learned the freedom and liberty in your schools, in, in America. I learned how much you struggle, all of you, to have your freedom. All of what we want is freedom. Is this too much for us to ask? So when we ask for protection of the civilian, is this so much things to ask to protect our children that they're going now to school underground because there is barrel bombs from the Syrian regime and barbarian from the uh, Russian? Why? My dream is, will be complete when the international community decided that we are people, we are human, and we deserve to be protected from killing. Thank you. And your, your colleague has a fellow peace builder, Haskell, is coming up to the mic. Halan, my Syrian sister, this is your Israeli Jewish brother, Kifinti. Uh, I, you know, I cry and pray with you all the time, and I'm wondering many things. Among them, when we talk about the international community, um, it includes the regional actors who, are, who have proxy forces in your country. So we have Iran and Saudi Arabia included, and um, Israel is involved, maybe not so directly or explicitly or on the surface. So as an Israeli peace activist my whole adult life, I ask what can Israeli peacemakers do on behalf of Syrian, our Syrian neighbors. I am heartened when Israeli physicians go to Lesbos and help Syrian refugees there, but I am wondering on a more fundamental um, level of people-to-people -people solidarity uh, in politics, um, I know that the Palestinian, our Palestinian neighbors are the first responsibility for Israeli peace builders. But at this moment, Syria is no less important for us. So how do you, in Geneva, when you think of the contribution and ultimate uh, healing potential of Israelis, Iranians, and Saudis, how do they factor into the regional peace-building challenge? Because it's not just, to me, it's not just the Russians and the Americans. But the, the region, your neighbors. So what, what do you have to say to us, your neighbors? Uh, yes. Uh, unfortunately, today the game is between the Russian and the American. They are the ones that are doing all the deals. They're putting Ukraine and Syria here and there. So it's all between the Syrian, uh, between the Russian and the American. Uh, as the Israelis, I, I need just to, uh, just to, um, uh, give you my, uh, just to let you know for one factor that many Jewish Israelis, they've been very involved in humanitarian work. Maybe people you don't, it's not in the media, 
but there is so many examples of Jewish women who've been driving their cars to Jordan with toys and humanitarian aid to their refugees. And uh, one day I asked a very, an academy, he's a Jewish academy, I told him, what is the position of Israel towards Syria? He told me, there are three things that Israel is thinking. One is the devil we know better than devil we don't know. So maybe Bashar al-Assad we know, he's better than we don't know who will be coming after. And second, the Israeli will be saying, okay, let them, we don't know this conflict, it's confusing, we don't want to think about it, that's it. And the third, as I told you, they are the one, the, the people who are thinking about the humanitarian issues and they crying like you and me, and we care, and many people in this audience, I can see how much they care. So those people are doing what they can. But, but and Israel, to be fair also, that Israel opened their hospitals in the south for the Syrian injured. So this is something we cannot ignore. We can't ignore. But as Saudi Iranian and Israelis, they're not, Iranians are playing a very serious uh, role in Syria. They're sending their, uh, their boots on the ground. As Saudis, they've been really pushing for political solution. They wanted to have a political solution. If you hear about Saudi are uh, supporting some uh, um, some military group, it's not the government or not the kingdom, some individual. It's happened. Qatari, the same things. But the, the reality is today, too many actors, and it's a proxy war. It's, it's all happening on the ground. And the people of Syria are paying, and they're paying a very hard price. So going back to your question about the Iranian and the Saudi and Israelis, they don't, they have a role, but they don't have a role. Because in the end, whatever their role is, when the Russia and the US sitting on the table and saying, okay, this is what we need. We need the cessation of hostilities. And they decided nobody will say no, everybody will be uh, comply. So in the end of the day, it's not those small actors, it's more about the big actors who are the Russian and the US. Okay, we can open it up now to the larger audience. So if you have questions, please. Um, I'm gonna ask the folks to come on up, but don't be shy about coming up to the podium, but we wanna make sure that Ian can hear us. Thank you. Uh, my name is Ahmed. Um, actually, I'm asking about uh, how you can use Islamic, um, use like Islamic intervention, make inter Islamic inter design Islamic intervention and understand the different interpretation of Islam as well as the custom and the tradition. Because we have a problem when we interpret the Islam itself. We have a Syrian interpretation for Islam and we have Egyptian interpretation, we have Iraqi interpretation. Plus, we are not talking here about Sunni and Shia, I'm talking here about how the people saw that their, of, their version of Sharia and how they understand the Sharia. Because there is a local understanding for the Sharia itself as a, as a custom and tradition and norms. How we can identify as a peace, 
builders, you have um, in, in, in some sort of intervention in conflict area, for example, Syria, how we can understand the difference between even Elabu and, and even Raqqa, and how we can inter interpret this to be like peace building plan and uh, very successful intervention. Thank you. Uh, uh, Ahmad, first, this is a very complicated question, but the reality is Islam is peace. Islam is salam. And as a Christian who I live in with the Islam all my life, this what you see from ISIS to the Al-Nusra, it is not the Islam we know. In Syria, the Islam we know that we pray in each other's homes, we visit each other's, we are together in the same school. We go together to do socializing. We celebrate together. For us, Islam in Syria is the moderate, loving religion who I never heard anybody from my Muslim friends who are accusing me or telling me that I'm kafra or anything. I am not an expert in the Islam of Saudis or Iraqi. I can tell you about the Islam in Syria. As an Arab woman, I do consider Islam is part of my history and very proud of it. And I feel so offended, so offended when I hear people talking about Islam in a bad way. Because for me, Islam is the religion of peace. And all my partners at work are Muslims, who I'm very proud of them, they're honest, they are the people who I lived with them, and they consider them as a family. Just to let you a small story about the Islam, even in a very hard area, like in a refugee camp, in the IDP camp, um, in uh, displaced, uh, uh, for the displaced people inside Syria, where there is only mother and children are in this camp. I went to visit them. And I didn't tell them that I'm Christians. But when they find out, they start hugging me and telling me, thank you for coming and driving all this way to come to visit us. This is the Islam we know. So when you see ISIS, it is not the Islam of the Syrian people. It's not Islam anyway. It's every, and you can ask Ahmed any expert, they can bring you about the Quran, everything, what's happening and what they're saying, ISIS or Al-Nusra, there is nothing to do with Islam. So let's face it. And when the people now saying, oh, the Russians are there to protect the, the Christian or protecting the minority, I can tell them as a Christian, please don't protect us. Protect the minority so they can protect us. We can't live without our Muslim brothers and sisters. In Syria, we're different religions and we need to live together. So about your question about this different interpretation of Islam and Shia, I don't know about this. I know about the people who are following the Quran, are people, and especially the good imams and the good priests, they follow the Bible, they are good religion people. They will, they will call for peace because not one religion will call for killing and for war. This is my understanding of Islam, Ahmad. Thank you. Other questions? Yes. Um. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering whether your leaders, I have two questions. Um, my first is I'm wondering whether the leaders of Syria, whether peace talks will work or whether you need the international community to go and wage war against the government of Syria, not the people, but the government, and, and whether, you know, ISIS and, 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 you know, the president of Syria, whether peace will work at all. That's my first question. And um, my second question is for you. Um, one of your things was that you should use religious um, culture and, and practices, um, but at the same time you're asking um, to make women more powerful, but don't, aren't most of the religious beliefs worldwide anti-women, or at least that men should be the leaders? And do those two mesh? Let me, let me start with your second questions because it's the easier. Um, um, first of all, uh, it is the 21st century and we need to be flexible and we need to look forward. And if you look to the Islam, uh, Khadija and Aisha, they were very much involved and they are the wife of the uh, Prophet Muhammad uh, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So in the religion of Islam, women were involved. What happened after with the if, uh, fatwas, etc., etc., it's not the Islam fault. So women participation, it was always there. As for the Christianity and others, this is the 21st century. And in our religion, in Christianity, they ask you to be always flexible. So uh, women can combine religion with peace, with engagement with politics, because it's the 21st century and we need to move forward. This is the first question, the second. And the first one, would you re uh, repeat it again, please? Uh, did the you say about uh, the involvement, like boots on the ground? What did you say? Right. Uh, so, Hin, the question, uh, the question was whether or not the question was whether or not peace is actually possible, or whether um, the international community needs to wage war on uh, Assad and uh, to challenge the Russian intervention. We're not asking anybody to put boots on the ground. We don't want to have any, anybody to lose their lives for the Syrian people. All we want to have a, a plan B about we need to have a safe area for the Syrian people to live, to protect the civilian. We're not asking you to fight anybody. All what we're asking to have a safe area for the Syrian people to go back, safe zone, safe area, protected area, anything you want to call it, call it. But what we need, I need my children to go to school without a barrel bombs, without anybody to kill them. ISIS has no support on the ground. People hate the ISIS. Syrian people, they, dis, they, they hate them. I have a friend who has her two daughters in Raqqa. Every day, they're calling their mother and crying, they say, they are evil, those ISIS. So there is no uh, support for the ISIS. In their zor, the people of their zor, the Sunnas, who are being killed by the ISIS every day, but also now there is assassination for ISIS leaders every day in their zor. So ISIS and al-Nusra, 
they've been very much unpopular. So there will be no future for them in Syria. And this is a fact. I'm not saying this. But the only things we want to do, we want to stop the three evils for Syria. ISIS, al-Nusra, and the Syrian regime. And we're not asking that the, uh, the American and others to have boots on the ground. All we're asking to protect the civilian, and it will come. Do you remember last month when we had the cessation of hostilities? Did you watch the news? Civil demonstrations, peaceful demonstrations went to the street. Women, men are dancing in the street because they know they will not be, they won't be killed by Russian or Syrians or anybody. So this is what we need: protection of the civilians and stop the killing. Thank you. I, I want to make just a quick comment on the understandable, because it's widespread, assertion that women, uh, that, that all religions are basically against women or challenge the legitimacy of women. I, first of all, I, I'm, I'm not challenging the source of what you're saying because I think it's widespread, but I am going to challenge the truth of it. And what ends up happening when we make those assertions is that we disempower all the women who are very active in their faith traditions and are profoundly making huge differences, as even Hind has said. And I know that your intention would never be to disempower those women, but the point is, is that these traditions grow up in the context of cultures, and many of the cultures and the prevailing powerful forces have been patriarchal, who have then recognized the legitimacy of men. Uh, there are, but within all religions, there's a wide w array of ways that those religions are interpreted, and it's so important. It's so important for us uh, to want to make sure to make room for the voices of women who may, in some cultures, not be given so much voice, or to make sure that within those cultures, we try to make sure that they're heard, even if they're not the prominent voices. And so, I just want to just implore. Uh, all of us here in the room, um, and you raised the question, I'm so glad you did, to, to, to stop making claims like all religious traditions um, disempower women, because there are some dimensions of all religious traditions that do, but there are so many traditions and dimensions of traditions where women are supported, uh, and, and we need to make sure that their voices are heard and recognized. So thank you for the question. Yeah, I, I'd like to pick up on it a little bit. Um, when we talk about our peacemakers, our religiously motivated peacemakers, we don't say our religious leader peacemakers. There's a reason that we don't use that language, because we're talking about religiously driven actors who are pursuing peace. Some of them may be clergy, and in many traditions, but not all, that may mean male, but many people are pursuing peace who don't have that mantle but are religiously driven. Um, and many women are doing that. And frankly, they, are, they tend to be underrepresented in um, formal peace-building settings. We actually have a nomination process that we go through. It's fairly extensive. It takes us about six months, and we have, you know, a, a research and selection, and we get nominations. And we discovered after several years of doing that that we were getting lots of nominations of men, and 
not so many a woman, which is why our first book only had two women in it. And so we began to address it, first with the Women's Peace Builders Initiative that was targeted, and then our board made a policy decision, which was one out of every two of the peacemakers selected in every two-year cycle must be a woman, and the second may be a woman or a man. And, but I'll tell you something, we have to go out and actively solicit nominations. And we don't really have to solicit nominations for women, by the way. We have to solicit nominations for Buddhists, for Hindus, for Taoists, for a range of people from, from indigenous traditions, because we don't get those nominations. And we, you know, we actually research and look for how we can reach into those communities of practice so that we get those nominations and that they will be included. But so far, that hasn't happened. We've only had, over the course of going on 25 years with this project for 20, um, we've only had one Hindu and two Buddhists nominated over the course of all those years. One of them was actually selected as a peacemaker. Um, because she met, met the five criteria, not because she was Buddhist. Um, so it's, it is a challenge, but I do think that women are empowered, and I'm reminded by a conversation I'll share with you that I had recently with um, a woman who was doing work in India and is now here, and she said, I am tired about people talking about empowering me. She said, I'm empowered. Just get out of my way. Fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it's an unusual question, um, and it's said from the heart, so I guess I'm medium. I'm not tall enough. <laughs> um, we just heard that there may be a massacre in a couple of hours. We have here a room full of people who are um, spiritual people. I'm also a photojournalist and an activist. Um, and there are a lot of people here who are well-connected and I can't just hear that there may be a massacre that we have heard about and that she's asking for help without at least asking the question if there might be something that we can do. Um, so I'm wondering if at the end of this, if we might be able to have some kind of, like we need more information about the location and other kinds of information, but if some of us might be able to gather here and someone can facilitate some kind of brainstorming about who knows whom, about press, about what kinds of people we may be able to contact in order to at least make some effort to stop this from happening. Thank you. And do you have any comments to make directly about that before? This is now directly from Hamas. From the, the, from the prison inside. There is no electricity now. And all those detainees inside, they're sending this. Uh, it is in the Hama, in the prison of Hama Center. The people are being stuck inside. They've been trying to demonstrate because they want to change their uh, because there is no water, nothing. They've been threatened now 
let me let, let me read you the statement now. The statement on the central prison of Hama, we are Syrian activists extend without exception this distress call to all international human rights, humanitarian organizations, and to the organization of Red Cross and Red Crescent Society. The request to extend assistance to the political detainees in the central prison of Hama after they carried out the intractability to protest against the arbitrary trial suffered by the prisoners, which resulted in the Syrian regime determination to execution death sentence to many of them. After negotiation, the regime failed to improve the condition of the detainees were given deadline until 5 a.m. So after one hour and 20 minutes from now, it's 3.20 now. Damascus time to lift the deadlock in the case of the detainees did not comply with the threat. The Syrian regime forces will attack the prison during a military operation, which is expected to produce a terrifying massacres against the detainees. We call on all international bodies to intervene to prevent an imminent massacres in the coming hours and that upon the request of the detainees also calls upon the international community to shoulder its full responsibility to deter the Syrian regime against any reprisals action against the detainees. We hold the international community and the human rights organization responsible for the massacres, which is accepted to be committed in the prison by the regime date May 6, 2016. That's it. So today, now it's 3.21, at 5 o'clock the massacres will start. And here we are watching it again. I want to thank you for your question. Very appropriate. And Hin, perhaps, I think we, I think we will, I will stay and organize a session to think about how we might respond. I think we need to move very quickly. Minimally, I would say all of us could get on our social media and spread this word. We could also uh, contact our State Department uh, to ask them to be attentive to this. Um, but I think at this moment, uh, I will stay. And if anyone else would like to stay, I, I would welcome the opportunity to speak with you. But thank you for raising the question. Uh, I was going to ask it in a different way. I love that you asked it. You asked it better than I would. So thank you. So I want to pause now just for a moment so that we can, first of all, thank you, Hin, for your remarkable work, for your inspiring words, for the hope that you, against all odds, continue to maintain, and for sharing in just the honest and loving way that you did your experiences and to, to alert us to this in time uh, tragedy that's unfolding in all kinds of ways but with this very particular momentary focus but the in time tragedy that's happening and you brought it to life for us here and I want to thank you on behalf of all of us for your witness and for the important work that you're doing so may we give him first a round of
Secondly, I want to uh, ask us to also honor and thank Joyce for the incredible work that she's done over decades to help organize opportunities for people to create the networks that are now being celebrated that we are the beneficiaries of hearing about. Uh, that work is, again, behind the scenes, really critical, and the networks themselves that are the foundations for peace in the world. So thank you, Joyce, for everything you've done. Over turn the podium over now back to Jean Hampton who has some announcements and a special uh, recognition. So if you all could stay for another just uh, at least five or ten minutes and then for those who are interested in staying for the brainstorming session, we can do some. So Jeff just told us that, that this is not unknown, um, although it was unknown to me, so I'm glad to know about it. But so it is information we have, so we don't need to detain him any longer for her important work. Can I say goodbye? And uh, Joyce would like to say goodbye to him uh, quickly. And we'll talk soon. I love you. We'll talk. Wow. Um, so, um, uh, it's kind of hard to find words, really, at, at this moment, but um, um, just a few things I'd, I'd like to express thanks to Hint and to Joyce and to Diane for this uh, really powerful session, which has shown us more than any session I think we've had of the importance of the work that the RPP is trying to do here in, in a small uh, way. Uh, it's kind of fitting, I think, that uh, this our last session was um, led by three women. Um, and um, fitting, I think, that it got us into the real world of, um, and I think I've sat in this room for 10 years listening to all kinds of presentations. I don't think I've ever s sat through one quite like this, uh, which had such powerful, dramatic, disturbing um, consequences. It is a sobering thing to think that something is unfolding right now that um, is gonna cost uh, many people their lives um, so, um, um, in that spirit, I just want to, uh, we had planned uh, some celebratory events. I think we'll try and move them along pretty quickly. Um, um, but I, I, um, so we can uh, spend a little bit of time gathering those who want to, to uh, talk about um, uh, what's happening right now in uh, Hammer Prison. Um, um, but just a very few quick announcements that the um, uh, that 
the uh, Peacemakers in Action book is available. Um, volume one, volume two will be coming out this summer with presumably this story in it, right? Well, or not as, not as current. As, as that, but hint, wrote. yeah. Um, but yes, her story is definitely Isn't it? in it. Yeah, so you can pre-order that. Um, as we finish up our RPP colloquium series for this academic year, I, I just want to thank some people, um, our RPP team, our, our fabulous student assistants have uh, done remarkable work all year. Uh, the media services that we've been uh, um, dependent on tonight, thank you so much for uh, making that possible. Um, people working behind the scenes to uh, bring things like this to us. Um, to the faculty, fellows, and alumni and staff of the working group who have contributed their expertise um, generously uh, throughout the year. Uh, to Jeff Soule, um, um, uh, lecturer in the practice of peace who leads the, leads the RPP colloquium course. And finally, to the graduate students in the RPP working group and colloquium course for your contributions throughout the academic year. I um, want to say a special word of thanks to those of you who have taken part in the Voices Student Video Project to help inform the global public about RPP and its impact. So for this, the first cohort of RPP working group students in the course, we've been fortunate to have a really truly cross-disciplinary bunch representing the Divinity School, the School of Education, the Kennedy School, the Law School, the Medical School, the Design School. GSAS and Tufts Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. This has really been one Harvard at its best, actually. And it, it, it's, it's not just the talk of one Harvard, but something substantial that one Harvard can do in bringing the, these, um, this expertise and these students together. Um, these diverse backgrounds, interests, and disciplinary perspectives have brought a great deal to enrich our uh, um, events this year. So as you transition from being RPP students to members of the RPP alumni network, a, a kind of Tannenbaum at Harvard, um, 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 uh, um, we want to honor your commitment to advancing sustainable peace and invite you as you move into the various leadership roles which you'll now be serving in the world to, tend, to stay in touch with us through the RPP alumni leadership network to continue to counsel and support one another in your endeavors. And as a token of this very special occasion that we've forged together in the recognition of your ongoing and future contributions to sustainable peace in our world, we'd like to ask each of you on your way out to come up so that Jeff and I can give you just a couple of very small gifts, some photos of your cohort and an HDS medallion. And if you haven't yet done so, please drop off your evaluation forms and your final papers. <laughs> Uh, so um, please do come forward and let's give these people a, a wonderful round of applause. <laughs>